This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Francesca-Nand. Having done what many people dream of, ditching a corporate career to travel, our guest today has created the life of his dreams, traveling to remote parts of Ethiopia, Iran, India, the Himalayas, Mongolia, and more. He's been woken up by 30 men with Kalashnikovs in remote African mountains, shaved his head and worn orange pyjamas for a few months after joining a Shailin monastery, and set off into the Amazon jungle with not much more than cigarettes and a machete. The proud founder of adventure travel company Yellowwood Adventures, it's Sam McManus. We're an adventure travel company and we take clients on the road less travelled. So off the beaten track to fantastic destinations like Ethiopia, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, uh, Ladakh in northern India. And I'm just about to open trips in the Lebanon mountain trail. I'm flying there on Friday to do some research. So I'm very excited about that. That sounds like a great bit of research to do. I mean, what a, what a terrible job you have. How did you get into it? I mean, travel has always been the great passion of my life. I didn't work in travel. Previously, I was I started as a journalist, I worked in financial media, and then I started living around the world, arranging large events, corporate events, conferences, and the classic story of uh, I reached to about 30, and you know I've been to about 50 countries, and everything, all the money I was always earning, I was always spending on going and doing these amazing explorations, but I had quite a lot of good organizational skills and I just quit my job and just said just do your own thing and then I actually I was working here in London for a consultancy I mean the classic sort of city job I was it's the most money I've ever earned the most miserable I've ever been and I was just like nope and I went to Ethiopia with a backpack for three months and just walked around the mountains met local guides built a website and just started from there. I've heard amazing things about Ethiopia. And um, in fact, when we had Tom Hall, the editorial director from Lonely Planet on the one country that he said is his favourite country in the world is Ethiopia. And what he said, which I don't know whether you'll concur, is that we have all these images of Ethiopia in the famine. And that's kind of where our images of Ethiopia have stopped. And he said it's a very beautiful, a green country. In fact, it's full of mountains and rivers. And will you explain it to me? Because I haven't been there. Yeah, I mean, Ethiopia, is like one of the worst global PR disasters in history. I mean, like you said, in, in the UK or maybe even just the West, people say Ethiopia and all they think about is the famine. And not a lot of people know that the famine was actually a political famine caused by the communist government, the derg that was ruling at the time. Whilst the famine was going on, they were actually celebrating 
10 years of communism in Addis Ababa with these lush banquets and all of this food aid was coming in, which they were stealing and selling on the black market. Ethiopia is actually a breadbasket of a country. Like you said, it's very mountainous, but it's very, there's a huge amount of green areas. The south is actually lush jungle where wild coffee grows. It's where coffee originated from in the world. And there's just these beautiful rolling golden fields of teff, which is a fine grain. It's actually a superfood that they use to make injera, which is sort of a flat, round, spongy pancake that they use to eat every meal. They don't use cutlery. They literally use the injera to mop up, you know, vegetable warts or the meats. Huge uh, pastoral country, loads of livestock. It's 95% of the population of farmers. And it's just one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And part of my job over the last three years has just been telling that story to people. And it's really taking off in terms of tourism. The, the government politically is much more stable now with Abiy in power. He came to power and within a couple of weeks flew up to Eritrea, with whom they'd been at war with for 20 years, and was just like, should we stop this? And they were like, yeah, okay. And the next day, Ethiopian Airlines chartered the first plane there in 20 years and families were reunited. And sometimes it's just that easy and that's, that's all it takes. It. So, yeah, the country's, you know, touch wood in a really good place. And, you know, I've never had a bad review from the people we take there. So is it safe, presumably, to go to now? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the safest countries in Africa. It always was safe. There were political demonstrations and and some rioting in in the last couple of years but it was never against foreigners it was always the intertribal politics and it was the aromas you know fighting with the amharas and the tigrinya um but that's as i said as, as there'll always be tensions in a in a country of like 100 million people they speak 82 languages it's hugely fragmented in terms of the tribal politics but you know, it was never against tourists and tourists always, you know, have a, a warm welcome there every time. So what's your been your most incredible experience in Ethiopia? Well, I mean, so the, that first trip I did and it was I mean, it's, it sounds crazy when I look back on it. I decided to start a travel company and I just started decided to start in a country I'd never been to before, which doesn't make any sense on on the surface. But sometimes you just have to follow your gut. And that's what I did. And it's worked out. But those three months there, I mean, it was a very sort of cathartic time for me, just traveling around by myself, getting to know the country and, and the people, just experiencing incredible hospitality that I just not really experienced in, in too many other countries. So at one point I was up in Lake Hashinge, which is quite a remote area of Tigray in the north, this beautiful lake, lush green mountains. And I just walked up into the mountains where I knew there were some villages and I just didn't even take a tent. I was like, I don't need to because I just know someone will take me in. And of course they did. And I think the last, I mean, I don't speak the local language very well. Well, there's, there's so many languages, of course. But, you know, you can communicate with three sign language and all sorts of things. And fair enough, you know, I'd been walking for six, seven hours and I got to a very small village and a priest saw me, was able to communicate later. Sort of the last foreigner that had been there was about a year ago, was an aid worker. So they didn't see a lot of foreigners and just invited me into this, you know, house made of stone. And there was a family inside and they fed me. And then I sort of demonstrated, you know, can I sleep here tonight? And the lady of the house just like looked at me as if I'd just asked her, like, is it okay if I breathe oxygen? It's like, of course, you know, I'm here. Where else are you going to sleep? And they let me stay there. And it was just women and children in the house. And I was like, wow, you know, there's this strange foreign bloke and they've, they've let him stay here. 
you know, that's sort of brave. I was like, wow, this is really hospitable and went to sleep. And in the morning when I woke up, obviously word had got around the village and all of the men came and it was about 30 men all carrying Kalashnikov AK-47 rifles as like a sign. And it, was, it wasn't it was an intimidation thing, but it's like a sign of um, status. No, in status. You know, it's like I'm a man, you know, I only got, they probably didn't even have any bullets. But so there's me being like, oh, these people are so brave and warming. Like, little did I know the village is like highly armed. <laughs> and they were so friendly and they actually like walked me out and everyone was shaking my hands. And it was it was just a wonderful experience. Were wonderful you worried time. when you saw them arriving with their guns? <sighs> Not really. I mean, Africa's Africa. You know, people have got guns. And like, you know, if there's like tension, there was no tension at all it's just like i said it's a status symbol do you think it's your privilege as a, a white male explorer that makes people so hospitable or do you think they would be it's perhaps something you can't answer because you, you don't have the experience from the other side but do you think they would be just as hospitable with yeah definitely local? yeah definitely i mean um i think i'm extremely privileged just to have the chance economically to be able to travel around the world the way that i do but on that trip, when I went then down right into the south, into the Bali Mountains, which no one ever explores, really. It's, it's beautiful. It's the highest plateau in all of Africa. Very green, lots of horses. And the Soneti Plateau, it was the only time that a friend came and joined me for this leg of the trip. And his name was Gabinda, and he's Indian, or he's British Indian. And so we'd hired a guide and, and horses, and we had tents, because it's a very remote place. There's nowhere to stay. It's sort of no, averages about 4,000 meters. And the guides and the locals had never seen an Indian tourist there. And they kept saying, Hind, Hind. <laughs> and they loved him being there and were, were just as welcoming. So, you know, I don't think, you know, they were equally welcoming to him. Just, you know, he's not white. I didn't really make a difference. They just liked having foreign people there. You work in other countries as well. Um, what country did you say you work in? So, Mongolia, for example, Kyrgyzstan, Iran. I'd love to go to Iran. Tell me about Iran. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm very fortunate to have local friends there. I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years and one of my best friends in Dubai, he married an Iranian lady and all of her family came over for the wedding in Dubai, which I went to as well. And we just hit it off straight away. And some live in Tehran, but some of them have got like ski chalets up in the Alpors Mountains where you can go skiing, which is absolutely beautiful. And we had such a good time at the wedding. They were like, oh, you should come and visit us and come skiing. And like, you don't have to ask me twice. <laughs> so, you know, the first time I went over there and stayed with them, as I always do now in, in their house in Tehran, and just got to know the Persian culture. Iran's actually a very misleading word. It's that the country was only named that quite recently. Interestingly, it comes from the word Aryan because Persians aren't Arabs. They originated from the Aryan tribes in the Caucasus and the North who came down, you know, many thousands of years ago. But it's Persia. It's really, you get that feeling when you're in Iran that it's a very foreign place. Again, hugely welcoming. I run trips there now with tourists. I was there last in October with a group of about 10 tourists. And we go down to Persepolis in, in the south, which is the ancient seat of the Persian Empire. You cannot believe, I mean, I've been to, you know, the, the pyramids in Giza, I've been to the Acropolis in Athens, and Persepolis is just better. It's, it's the mo one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. The carvings in the limestone, limestone is actually very hard, but a lot of them were buried under the sand after... I mean, a lot of it was smashed up by Alexander the Great, of course, but I didn't realise how much is still there. And the carvings 
just look like they were done yesterday and the detail that still has lasted for two and a half thousand years it is mind-blowingly beautiful oh that's good that it's been preserved you know throughout more recent conflicts yeah you know i heard that a lot was destroyed as well Yes, but it's yeah no. I would I would highly recommend anyone to go there. Just you you can't obviously throughout time you know, and a lot of looting has taken place and all of that. But just it's it's an immensely beautiful place and perfectly safe. I mean, if you want to go to Iran tomorrow, it's like how how do you do it? You just you you can just go. Yeah, there's again you know I've I've tended to pick the countries from for my company that are perceived to be very dangerous or there's just a lot of sort of foggy myth around if I go but then I can't get a visa and just no one really knows but actually you just apply for a visa and they give you a visa and you go. (laughs) I partner with an excellent agency in Tehran that I've known for a long time. They sort out the visas, we get a, a really good knowledgeable guide and off you go and and again people are just so welcoming. I had a couple of Americans come on the last trip in October. One guy was a doctor from New York. And they, you know, being an American, he was a bit apprehensive. You know, there's a lot of fake news or whatever you want to call it coming out of the Trump administration about going. And he was so overwhelmed by how friendly people were. People were coming up to him and being like, oh, you're from New York. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for not listening to the press. And he actually wrote a blog post about it, which which I put on the website because he was just, just wanted to tell people, you know, don't listen to, to what you're hearing listen to me because I've been there and I've seen it with my own eyes so what's been your most standout experience in Iran do you think oh that's a very good a good question for me it's the skiing really? no yeah no, no one no one associates that with Iran so the last Shah in the 70s he was it was the height of the petrodollar boom he was like international playboy and he was a really keen skier so in the 70s he imported a lot of the best at the time, Swiss ski lifts and, and equipment. And they go up to three and a half thousand meters. I mean, that, that parallels anything in the Alps. And, you know, it's just fresh powder. It's not crowded. It's relatively cheap. And you just get to hang out with Iranians. And it's just so much fun. It's just, I'm, I'm picturing like this sort of 70s ski paradise now with like, you know, is it all, is it still sort of 70s theme? Or it's, it yeah, kind of... every, well, everything kind of feels a bit 70s and bougie in, oh, in Iran, it. except there's no Apri ski, of course. Oh, uh, yes. Um, sure. But it's got, so Dizin, which is the most famous ski resort, it's got a view of Mount Damavand, which is the highest volcano and highest mountain in the Middle East. It's a perfect volcano with a crater in the top. And it's just, the views there are exceptional. Yeah, so you also go to Mongolia. Now, I have nothing... All the countries that you go to are countries I've never been to, which is yeah. quite rare because I'm, I'm actually very well-travelled. Mm. But all my travel... A lot of my travel was sort of based around reviewing luxury hotels, and this is not what you're travelling about. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so I've been to, you know, some quite exotic places, but stayed in the luxury hotel. So I haven't been to Mongolia. I haven't been to Ethiopia, and I haven't been to Iran. Uh, tell me about Mongolia. I have no idea. So Mongolia, for me, I went for the first time last year. I mean, I've sort of created the life I've always wanted, whereby I get to go to these places I've always dreamed of, scope them out, make good partnerships, and then bring people and tourists after me. Mongolia, for me, is one of the last great frontiers of the world. I mean, it has a population of about three or four million people, most of whom are in the capital of Lambertar. And the country is about the size of a good chunk of Western Europe. I mean, that is how big we're talking here. And they were obviously ex-Soviet Union, but communism just never really stuck just because of the, the vast distances, not 
somewhere like Kazakhstan was was influenced much more heavily, for example. And I go and we and the tourists that we bring, we, we spend time with the nomadic people. We stay in the felt gurs. And they're real nomads. It's not like weekend nomads. This is their life. They live and die by the old ways and, and everything is around their their flocks. So nomadic peoples in Central Asia, it's not some cultural quirk. They had to be nomads because the seasons and the, the terrain is very unforgiving. Very harsh hot summers, very cold winters. So in the summers, the snow would melt and you, you, you can move with your flocks for the f- fresh pasture. But once it starts to get cold... And, and the snow comes, obviously, your your camels, your, your horses, your yaks, your sheep, your lambs, they can't eat. So you have to pack up your yurt, put them on a yak or in a cart, or now it's more often a truck, move to, to fresh pasture. And they had to move because of, of the climate and obviously just to keep their flocks alive. Because if their entire Mongolia, I mean, their entire diet is meat and milk. They live by their animals. So everything about their, their culture and community is around preserving their animals and therefore preserving themselves. And they still live like that. And it's so wonderful to just go and experience that. And all of the clutter of modern life and stress or perceived stress just falls away and you get back to basics and these these huge long vistas of step and big sky and it just for me anyway and this is why I'm so drawn to these countries you just feel alive and just how this is how life I mean this is how life has been for millions of years for humans you know for me it's just going back to the those basics that just it's so rewarding. I wonder if it is for them, because it sounds like quite a harsh life. You know, it's great to be taking a, a break from our, the harsh or maybe less harsh realities of our busy lives, but it must be quite hard for them. Are they happy, generally, the people? Yes, very much so. And, you know, there's some, I mean, there's no, you know, nothing's black and white, of course. And obviously their life is is very hard, but then they have some things that we are starting to lack in the modern world, like the sense of community is so much stronger, the sense of family, People live together in the girls. Children will go off to school, but but then live there and the grandparents are there. And people are much closer together in much more tight-knit communities. They have more of a focus on, you know, their traditional culture, like the Nadam Festival, which takes place in July with horse racing and archery and wrestling. And people get so excited and go and see that. And, you know, we in the West, we have football matches and, and, and similar things, but it just feels different so so yes their life is is harder obviously the more remote you get the the less access you have to proper medical facilities and things like that you know i don't have an idealistic view of the world but they definitely have a lot of advantages i think so when you take a tour there what sort of things do you do well we do exactly that we go and stay with the local people we stay in the gurs and we just experience their way of life we do what is the gur so one of the tents that yes have. so in kyrgyzstan and in other Central Asian country, they're called yurts, which comes from yurta, the the Russian for for tent. It's exactly the same, just sometimes a bit bigger in Mongolia. And the only difference between a gur and a yurt is that the gur often has two wooden poles supporting, whereas often the yurts are are freestanding in in Kyrgyzstan and other places. And then they'll just have a simple steel, you know, wood burning stove with a chimney. I mean, in the back in the day, it would just be a fire and they were incredibly (laughs) smoky, which is very bad for your health actually and now you know there's the modern adaptation is that there's a chimney poking out the top and they put some plastic on the the top to stop the rain coming in so they're unbelievably snug warm because they're made from from felt and 
just cozy. I feel more cozy in there than in, a, in any hotel. Do you find it difficult to adjust to normal life when you come back to London? Um, yes and no. I mean, you get used to it. And obviously it depends on the amount of time you, you spend away. There is always that sort of reverse culture shock in, in a way. It's not so bad now because the trips I'm doing are shorter. I'm just away for a couple of weeks at a time. But before, when I was, you know, younger and, you know, first started venturing out into the world, my sort of first big trip was when I was 18. I went and lived in China and then traveled around and ended up in the Himalayas in Nepal. And I was away for about eight months and just in the most rural, beautiful, incredible places. And coming back that first time was a real shock to the system. It took me quite a long time to get over that, I remember. I didn't, just didn't really understand, you know, coming back from the Himalayas and then like seeing my mom and going into a supermarket and just being like, whoa. But, you know, I'm sure your, your audience is very well-traveled. They will have experienced much of these things. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, you can be well-traveled in different ways. Like I've, like I said, I've been to over 40 countries, but I've never been anywhere remote. So I don't know what it's like to be in those remote situations. And I imagine it's very peaceful and awe-inspiring. I'd love to see that big remote sky, you know, with all the stars. You know, mm. that's quite difficult to find in many places around the world now. Well, yeah. And so, you know, I actively seek out these kinds of places. And Kyrgyzstan, we've been running trips there now for a couple of years. The Milky Way that you see there, there's almost no light pollution. It's just absolutely incredible. And because I was spending so much time there and we, we go camping in the Tian Shan Mountains, just Having the stars there all the time, I started buying star maps and, and, and studying them because you just feel so much more connected to where we actually are in the universe because you, you're just seeing it every day. It's so easy to forget, especially somewhere like London. Yeah, I think that, you know, seeing that, I'd love to see one of those big, huge starry skies. And I do a lot of, uh, I go to the Maritime Museum, the National Maritime Museum a lot and the Planetarium because I live in, in southeast London in Greenwich. And... You, you hear, you know, you hear about people navigating their way around the world through the stars, the great explorers. And, you know, that's something we just don't get to see mm. unless you go to these remote places. Yeah, absolutely. And my degree was in English literature and I read a lot of travel writing. I do a little bit myself, but mainly just with post on the blogs. But reading those great explorers, people like Thesiger, who, you know, crossed the Rub al-Khali in Saudi Arabia twice with the Bedouin, and going back to like Marco Polo and even Herodotus. So once you start to read those old explorers, what I'm doing now, it just makes it look like play school. <laughs> so, you know, if you have that as your benchmark, you know, people are like, oh, I can't believe you're going to Iran and doing all this stuff. You're like, I, I flew there. Like, <laughs> it's not... I've got a mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you have to go back and look at what the old school travellers were doing to actually really put in perspective to, to what we're doing. I mean, I'm, I still go out there by myself to some pr pretty remote places, but I don't kid myself that I'm doing anything truly exceptional. Well, you know, I, I was having this conversation. I had a, a girl on, Megan Hoskin, who rode across a part of the Pacific. From, oh, I listened to that oh, one. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, good. she went to the Hawaii. Yes, she did. Yeah, yeah it was fantastic. America, yeah. and which is, you know, like a massive journey. And one thing I said to her, she was like, well, we were the first people in history to, or the first boat of three well, that she broke some record there's yeah. three women in a boat and they rode you know which is amazing but one thing i said is like do you feel the weight of history because of course you're probably not the first person to do that it's just the first person that recorded it you know mm. in, in history people 
as we know from DNA, people migrated all the time. People must have rowed across the Pacific. They must have rowed across all the oceans. And going back further than those great explorers we were talking about, even further, people just set out and did it. Yeah, like the Vikings, for, for example. There's even some books that say, you know, the Chinese were, had gone to America and stuff like this. I mean, like you said, they just set out in a boat and hope for the best. Do you, does it make you feel more connected to your fellow humans? Because when you travel like that, particularly if you do like a great overland journey, one of my uh, uh, guests was talking about, you know, going from here to Singapore and you just see, you see the, the, the people changing, you see them getting darker, you see their eyes getting darker, you see so that their eyes getting narrower at one point, you see mm. their eyes getting bigger. You know, you can actually just see how we're all connected. You know, it's very difficult to be racist or prejudiced when you see people as we are, you know, as one like that. No, 100%. And as I said, you know, I have a very privileged life because I do spend a lot of my time traveling all around the world and it just changes your perception of people and and how you look at things. And it's fascinating. You know, I read a lot of history and I'm intrigued about how the races have evolved and intermingled. And going back to Ethiopia, you know, one of the earliest humanids called Lucy is her remains oh, are there in, yes, in the National Museum in Addis Ababa. And it's just fascinating to just track the progress of, of humans around the world. And like you said, you know, race and, and all of that just sort of falls away and then you just become, you're just interacting with other people. And most of it is, you know, there's good people and there's bad people everywhere. It's, it's who they are as a person and what they're projecting that I tend to judge people on. I think judging people on race, sex, all of that stuff, it's just... It falls to the wayside. Is there, have there been any times that you felt in danger or afraid when you travel? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say, you know, 95% of the time, if you go looking for trouble, you'll find it, undoubtedly. For me, I've been very fortunate that I have sort of quite a good nose for if a situation is just not looking great, I'll sort of get myself out of there pretty quickly. Or you can turn a situation around like I've had knives pulled on me and and stuff like that but most of the time it's it's not the situation it's how you react to it or how you perceive that a situation could form and avoid it in the first place nearly all of the time just following your gut instinct is the most important thing in life in general but especially in in traveling so a good example of that is i was in kyrgyzstan horse riding i mean i love riding and we a lot of the trips we do are horse riding and i'm I didn't grow up riding, I only learnt really when I was living in the Middle East. I was based in Dubai for my job there. And Dubai is sort of, the, you know, the Las Vegas of the Middle East. If you're not clubbing, which I'm not a big fan of, I was like, well, what else is there to do? And fortunately, my friend Francesca, who I was neighbours with, is really into horse riding. So we'd go out and gallop these Arab stallions around the desert. And I was hooked from then. So, you know, I ride in Mongolia and especially in Kyrgyzstan. So we're up in the Tian Shan Mountains with my friend uh, Rona. We've been camping and hiking and we use horses. There's no roads. We use horses to transport our equipment over the mountain passes. And we'd, we'd made camp and the horses were there and it was still early afternoon. So Rona was like, oh, let's go for a ride. I was like, brilliant. So we get on these horses and we gallop around like idiots in, in the sort of like lower Green Valley. And there was a beautiful stretch of grass, almost like a racetrack, but just a natural one that went past two yurts. And Rona was like, come on, let's gallop past it. It'd be really fun. And just those warning bells went off. Just that gut feeling of like, I don't know why, but that doesn't feel like a good idea. And I was like, no, no, let's let's just go around this way. And Ronnie was like, no, come on, that's really stony. We can't go fast. Let's go down there. And I was like, 
uh, okay, and made the mistake of, of going against that sort of internal warning system that was going off. So we galloped down. As we got to the yurts, we were like, out of respect, let's, let's slow down in case there's people or children or something. So we, we slowed down to a walk on the horses and we're sort of walking past. And this dog came out from behind the yurt at the size of a small bear. And I was like, oh, that's a nice dog. And I was like, oh, the dog is moving awfully quickly towards my horse. And the dog just came, ran up to us and latched onto the horse's hind leg and bit right into it. And my horse reared up. I managed to stay on and just adrenaline kicked in. I was like, yeah. And we galloped out of there. And fortunately, the, the dog's fangs had gone in, but it hadn't done any tendon damage. It just had a small puncture wound. And, you know, if I'd have fallen off the horse, you know, then I have to deal with a bear-like dog. And the dog was just doing its job. It's a guard dog. You I was going to say, they're trained up to Trained that. to protect the yurt and the livestock. And, you know, we got out of there and we, we bandaged up the horse and, and everything was totally fine. But from that moment on, I was like, never, ever, ever go against your gut feeling ever again because it just never pays off. What's been the, the most exhilarating moment of your travels? Wow, that's, a, that's an enormous question. There's been, I think... Um, one of the most exhilarating ones was when you first go out and, and go into the world, you see everything with sort of fresh eyes. And the first trip I did, I was, I was 18. I hadn't traveled a huge amount. We'd done some family holidays to Greece and France and things. But I went to the Himalayas in, in Nepal and trekked up to Everest Base Camp, which then was much less popular than it is now. It's sort of become a bit of a commercial highway, unfortunately. But... Um, just being there and being in the mountains and I would sort of follow the path but then just walk off and and do some side routes climb some smaller peaks I just couldn't believe where I was and and seeing the Himalayas stretch away from you like that is I was hooked try and uh, describe what it looks like it's just you can't believe what the sunlight and the snow and the ice that the the colors and the scenery that they can create it's like being on drugs it's like the most powerful imagery you've ever seen like one night we were camping opposite everest on the calipatur just outside we'd made a windbreak in our sleeping bags it was summer and the sky just went bright purple like bright bright purple looked like a like a, an artist palette and then when the sun went down obviously everest is the last thing the sun touches and it went bright gold like gold, like a gold Rolex watch in a purple sky. And I was just like, have you spiked this tea? What is going on? It was just the most incredible thing. And that for me, I mean, it, it, that came to mind because it was sort of the first. And I've sort of been chasing that dream ever since. And it's come back in, in many shapes and, and forms. I did a lot of climbing in um, South America in the Andes. And it's always been similar, but that was the first. And I was just like, this is what life is all about. That sounds amazing. So you were 18 when you did that Himalayas trip, which is really young to travel. Did you find, obviously, when you travel, you know, things there's good things and bad things. Was it traveling at such a, a young age? How was it? Yeah, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, of course. The reason for that initial first trip wasn't travel itself, interestingly. I was very into martial arts when I was younger and I was studying kung fu from the age of done kickboxing and things from like 16. And I got really into kung fu and was very idealistic and decided to go and join a kung fu Shaolin monastery in northern China, which I'd found on the internet. 
I mean, my parents thought I was crazy, but equally just wanted to get me out of the house because I was a nightmare. So I saved up money and went and, and joined this monastery, which I, I thought I'd stay for, for a year. And it was right up in the north, quite close to the Russian border in Jilin province. And it was on, on the top of a hill and, you know, we shaved our heads and wore orange pajamas and used to have to run up 365 stairs and, you know, do push-ups and run around the lake and and learn all of this Shaolin Kung Fu training. It was extremely tough. And then we used to have to fight every Friday with each other. It was mainly Westerners, but the, the, all of the instructors were Chinese monks and there were some Chinese students there as well. And so I remember my first fight was, it was out on this huge plane in front of a essentially temple where we all lived. Big stone slabs with a huge view of the rolling hills around us. And there was a lake down here. And it was the weirdest thing, because before I'd gone, I remember I was still living at my parents' house and we lived down in Kent and I had my window of my bed and you could see the, the forest where I grew up. And I woke up once when I was planning to go and I'd had this very vivid dream of a gate, a huge wooden gate with flags on the top that had blown over. And I was like, that is so weird. And then on my first fight, it was with a big Dutchman. There'd been a storm the night before and the gate to the the, the Shaolin monastery with flags on it had blown down wow. and I was standing there on these stone slabs and I saw that and I was just like oh my god that was my dream and in that very moment the Dutchman lifted up his leg and went bang and roundhouse kicked me in the face I was like oh my god I'm in a fight <laughs> I kind of held my ground stupidly and took an absolute beating but it was just one of those funny moments and then the story progressed because then actually he really kind of laid into me this guy and I got really bad headaches and I'd never had headaches before and I was a bit worried. I even went to the hospital and these headaches just wouldn't stop. I was like, do I have concussion? What is this? Like I said, I went to the hospital and they gave me some medicine and it didn't work. And after a few days, I went to one of the monks and said, yeah, my, my head really hurts. And he said, not a problem, we'll, we'll get someone in. And it was like something out of a movie, this old, wizened Chinese medicine man, acupuncturist came in and he honestly had like a beard down to his waist and he put needles in my hands, the pressure point between your thumb and forefinger and, and two needles in my, my temple and I just sat there for five minutes looking like an idiot <laughs> and he took them out and I've never had a headache before or since. That's crazy. <laughs> it was it was pretty good. Oh, and you've, you envisaged it all in a dream as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I, again, I've never had a dream like that before or since. It was just one of those crazy moments that can can never be repeated that is the way to travel when you're 18 when you're at that age you have so many dreams and ideals and you see the future and the present sort of differently you have different dreams and you know almost it's almost a bit mystical like almost what you're saying about the dream and i remember like being able to you know, suddenly at some point you'd realise the meaning of life. I know this sounds ridiculous. Mm. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it sounds like you'd suddenly get the meaning of life. And I had this about a, a year ago. This sounds very ridiculous again. In a, I was at a gig in the O2, massive, big concert arena. And I was, who was I watching? The Kaiser Chiefs. And <laughs> I know this is not where you have a mystical experience. You don't expect to. But as I was watching it, I could see like the world. I could see the, the whole shape of the world. And I could see that suddenly life and people and humans and everything connected and made sense. And it was a feeling I haven't had since I was about 18 or 19 when very, very occasionally I get this mm. like, the world makes complete sense. I actually said this to my husband, who's a, a counsellor, and I said, have you ever, you know, a few days later, because I was feeling a bit weird about it, I was like, have you, ever, have you ever had something like that? And he said, no, but he counsels students for a living. And he said, but a lot of my counsellees will say that, well, you know, the 18, 19, 20 year olds will have this like 
different view on the world mm. that sort of goes when they get older. Yeah, and I, th I think that's for people, I mean, I travel is so important to me. I think that's probably what we're chasing, that understanding and that meaning of life. But it can go both ways. I mean, I was very idealistic when I was younger. And even, you know, from that story in, when I was 18 in China, I'm still probably quite idealistic in some ways, but you have a, a more rounder understanding of the world. So even in my mid-20s, when I was done with university, I went and lived in South and Central America for a year and a half and did a lot of traveling. And I just going back to, you know, I was absolutely adamant that like the old ways of the world were better than the modern ways. And I wanted to go into the Amazon jungle and like find the, the tribes there and live with them because I was like that, you know, their life, they've got it. They, they know how to live. And so I was in uh, Bolivia. I found a guide called Sandro. He spoke Spanish and Hebrew, interestingly, because there's a lot of Israeli tourists there, but no English. And that was how I learned Spanish or started to learn Spanish. And I found him and paid him. And I was like, let's go into the Amazon for two weeks with no food. Just show me like how to live off the land. And we went in with, you know, a bag of salt, cigarettes for morale, <laughs> a bag of sugar, fishing hooks and, and machetes. And that's all we took into the jungle for two weeks. And obviously got bitten a lot. And we used to make A-frames from the big leaves, which would sleep in at night. And we once got attacked by wild boars. Like you can smell them before you can see them. And we had to dump our stuff on the ground and climb up these trees and he showed me how to, you know, eat berries and, and we live mainly off fish from the rivers. But then what, we got very far into to the Amazon and there was this, you know, small hut where a man lived with his two young children. And I was kind of expecting, you know, like paradise and this sort of return to nature and, and the old ways. And his wife had recently died. He was just keeping his kids alive by spearfishing, but they had distended bellies from malnutrition and there was just a bad vibe in this place through probably no fault of his own just uneducated he's you know he's a tribes person and i was like you have to be realistic that not everything's sweet smelling roses like life is hard and like are those kids even alive now so as much as you chase the dream you you have to be realistic about what you're confronted with and the world is a mixed bag I always think that it's like that when people go somewhere and they'll complain about it being built up, but they've been living in their own built up community with all the, you know, mod cons that brings, you know, hot and cold, running water, plumbing, sewage, all those things that help keep people healthy. Exactly. And they'll go somewhere and go, oh, so it's a bit too built up and developed around here. It's like, well, that's the you way. You try living there. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's how people get well and have sanitization. And that's why whole populations survive a lot longer than they than they did previously. Mm. So, yeah, it's the combination between the, the romanticizing of it and the, the real life, isn't it? Always. Yeah. Right. So I have to I could chat to you for ages, but we have to cut it short at some point. So I am going to ask you my last question. And I know you're a listener of the podcast, so you know what that is going to be. It is going to be about music because I always think music and travel go hand in hand. And if you had to pick one song that reminds you of a special time or moment of travel, what would that song be? So there's one, I don't tend to take music with me because I like to experience the music of, of the country, which can definitely go yeah, both ways. <laughs> A recent example of that actually was in Iran. We were in the desert city of Yazd, which is right in the middle of the country. And I was there with a group of tourists. And one night, Darius, who's the local guide we work with, he's a very erudite, well-educated man. He's a fantastic guide. He was telling us what a holy city Yazd was. And, you know, people are very conservative there. And we go to a restaurant and it was the loudest live, like almost rock and roll band playing. We couldn't even speak over dinner. 
And the guy was like this sort of Iranian Frank Sinatra and was like, America, I love you. And we had to keep like waving through the meal. And then he came and introduced himself. So that was awful. But then similarly, the next day we went to an art house and the proprietor invited us in and brought out a lute. It's called a setar, which is a three-stringed Persian instrument, although most of them have four strings now. And just played for an hour and we were just spellbound it just brought all of the mosques we've been to all of the palaces it just the indescribable feeling of history and culture and a soul of a people that you can never portray in words came out from this performance and it was completely unplanned it was one of these joys of travel so i like to experience music wherever i go if i had to pick one song i do you know sitting here in london on a sunny day i've had a good night's sleep and a good breakfast all the hardships of travel tend to fall away but Sometimes when it's difficult or you meet bad people or something bad happens or you just get worn down, people are always asking you for money and you get tired and you feel bad about the world. I do have a piece of music that I'll always go back to. It's Morricone and it's the theme tune to the film The Mission, which is a fantastic film with Robert De Niro and, and Jeremy Irons set in, in South America in, in, in the jungles there. And the particular performance, if I'm ever feeling down, I watch it. It's, it's live. It's with an orchestra of about 150 people and a choir of maybe 50 people. And it just starts off the slow melody of the oboe and then a string section comes in and it builds to percussion and brass. And just when you think it can't become any more beautiful, the choir step in. And Morricone is just a genius. The soul he's created in this piece of music just gives me such hope that there's so much goodness in humanity and just reminds me to walk on the sunny side of life. Thanks so much, Sam. Well, I'm still in Spain. I don't have a guest lined up for next week, so I might well take a week off for Easter. However, if anyone interesting pops up here in Malaga, I might not be able to resist recording it either. So watch this space. But if there's no episode next week, we'll definitely be back the week after. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.